Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today is a really special episode where we are going to sit down with Joe Stock advocates Lee and Cherie to discuss his case and why it is being considered a wrongful conviction. So grab your fire department coffee and let's dive in. All right, so we have with us today two people to talk about Joe Stock and his case. So we've got Lee Mendelson and Cherie O'Neill joining us. Hello. Hi. So we will have um, Lee and Cherie introduce themselves and give a brief overview of how they know Joe, how they got involved with the case. And then we will go ahead and get into some more details about the case itself and why we believe that Joe is innocent. So Cherie and Lee, if one of you wants to start and go ahead and let us know a little bit about yourself and how you got involved. Yep. Hi, I'm Cherie. Um, I met Joe about six years ago for a pen pal website. Um, he said that he was a wrongful conviction case and um, if anybody wanted to ask him about it, go ahead. So I did. And um, the more I got to know him and hear about his case, the more I decided that he really did need somebody to kind of believe in him and speak up for him. So yeah, that was that was basically how we met. My name is Lee. I am friends with Cherie before I was friends with Joe. We were both always interested in, in true crime stories, and it was something that we talked about a lot, and she was into writing to certain inmates, and she had told me a little bit about Joe's story. And the more I heard, the more unjust it seemed, just the lack of evidence, the um, situation surrounding it, and over time, eventually, she suggested um, that maybe we should do something to try to help him out, and I was on board. So anyway, uh, she suggested doing something to help him out, and uh, we started doing some social media for him, um, started up a website for him, tried to do a little bit of advocacy, because in this day and age, these kind of cases it can really benefit from public awareness and public knowledge. And I truly feel like his cause is one that needs to be put out there. So Lee and Shuri, if you guys want to tell us a little bit more about the case and how we got to this point in Joe's case. Okay, so I first got all the court documents from Joe, so I started to read through them and then... As, as Lee said, we used to discuss certain crimes. So, um, you know, it, it, it started as a, a story, a, a young girl who was found murdered in her home. The crime scene was horrific. There was blood everywhere. There was not too much DNA in terms of fingerprints and stuff that were lifted, but there was fingerprints, there was blood, there was a bag, there was paper, there was a footprint, there was, you know, quite a lot of evidence left behind. So me and Lee discussed that, and then her ex-boyfriend was arrested for it, which is Joe. And the more we kind of dug into the story, the more we realised that certain things wasn't adding up. So whoever had killed this girl had stabbed her 180 times. They had taken her car as a getaway vehicle. They had supposedly taken some clothes to get away. But when her car was found, there was no blood evidence in the car. There was not really much... DNA with it so that to me struck me as odd and then the timelines didn't add up there was Joe went to the police station the next day voluntarily he gave an interview um he was photographed from head to toe he had no marks no scratches no cuts no bruises 
Um, they took his clothes from him. There was loads, weren't there, Lee? And, and you kind of... It, it, the more I explained to Lee, the more he kind of come on board and was like, but this doesn't add up and that doesn't add up. Yeah, there was just a ton of stuff that really didn't make sense. And, you know, the that whole being photographed and having no marks on him or no... um no evidence of anything, that was something that really struck me in the beginning because uh, it was stated in some of the evidence that Connie had some had hair follicles under her fingernails, there was evidence of a struggle, the state pathologist said there was a, a massive struggle or that there was evidence of one, and on top of that, again, she was stabbed 180, 186 times. You cannot have that kind of crime and not have at least a self-inflicted injury. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's not possible. Because you get you get sweaty as well, you get sweaty. You get, uh, you know, it's the adrenaline and stuff. I mean, to to actually stab somebody that many times, the adrenaline that that runs through you eventually is going to crash. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be sweating. You're going to be covered in blood. The, the knife is going to become slippery. It's it's virtually impossible to not slip and cut your hands. And as you said, she had the you know defense wounds. So she had attacked her attacker or attackers. Yeah, he had nothing on him, no marks, no no nothing. Yeah, and on top of that, there were no there were no evidence of of blood anywhere on any of his clothes, on his shoes, on any of his belongings from that day, which they checked all of that thoroughly. They ripped his shoes apart, and you can't again, you can't have a scene that has blood splattered from floor to ceiling on every wall and every furniture and not get a drop on you. That doesn't make sense. Real quick. Sure, you mentioned the timelines and the alibis not matching up. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, they um, said, I, I can't, what was the time frame that they gave? Because they didn't give a specific death time, did they? I never did find a specific time of death. The only stuff, stuff that I found was that they couldn't quite match up the time of death with the alibi that he had, which could be verified by his mother and his sister because they were all together for the most of it. But her, her dad left in the morning and he was home by, was it 3 p.m.? Yeah, 3 or 4, something like that, I believe. Yeah. So so she was, she was killed at some point between 8 and 3. And he wasn't there. He wasn't in the area. He was with his mum and his sister um, in town miles away. We, we actually worked out the times, didn't we? It was, it was literally virtually impossible to get to the crime scene do the crime, clean up, leave, hide the car, and then get on a train and go meet his family. There was there was no way that, that those timelines could actually match up. It couldn't be done. Yeah, not only did we, did we figure out that time, but also you know it was straight up stated in some of the articles, um, in some of the material that we had that it couldn't add up because he you know, he had boarded this train um to go downtown um with his mom and his sister, and he rode with them for about fifteen minutes in what was apparently the opposite direction of where the crime happened, and then. You know, they, the police had checked every taxi, every bus route, every train route. They checked every public tra- transportation route and every major tra- taxi route, and there was no way they could find to put him at the crime scene at the time of the crime. That was something that struck me. I mean, especially when reading through the course stuff and all that blood evidence, and there's always, you know, I know that it was stated that no DNA was matched to him at all from the crime scene. And then that alibi, it seems like that should absolutely completely say that he's innocent if he physically could not even been there. And that was something that struck me with Joe's story is that there really wasn't anything that was seemingly putting him there and would connect him to the crime other than that supposed confession from Alfonso 
Nahira. And so I definitely want to talk about that as well, because that seems to be really what was incriminating in terms of from what the jury saw, even though there were only bits and pieces that were used. Yeah, I, th- I think they found uh, fingerprints in Connie's car of Joe's, but obviously they were dating. He was in the car. He used to drive the car. It wasn't uncommon for him to be in her car. So they kind of said, oh, well, his fingerprints in the car, but there's no blood. There's no... How can you exit a, a scene like that and not leave any evidence behind? And not only did they take the shoes that he was wearing that day, but they actually took every pair of shoes that he owned and he tore, they tore every single pair of shoes apart. And during the trial, they used these shoes and they paraded them around in front of the jury to say, you know, look, we had to do this, you know. But every single pair of his shoes were clean. None of them had any blood splatter on them or, or anything like that. There was not, no evidence whatsoever to tie him to the crime, no alibi that put him there, no eyewitness that put him there, nothing. Just a alleged confession by somebody who <laughs> obviously was hounded somewhat by the police and, you know, was in a... I think he was held for like 10 hours. I think it was longer, I think... I think they said 12 or 13. Yeah. Um, would one of you want to talk about that a little bit more in depth? When he went in for questioning, he was not actually, um, he wasn't there willingly originally. He was actually taken from his place to, of work by the police to the police station. Um, he was not actually officially put under arrest. He was The police had come to his place of work. Uh, they spoke to him. They said they needed to speak to him outside. It was not the first time police had wanted to, had wanted to talk to him. So he went outside to talk to them. And he sat down in the squad car, and they just drove off and took him to the police station. He was read his rights. I don't believe, and but I don't believe that he was actually put under arrest from anything that I saw. And they basically sat him down in the interrogation room, and they kept him there for you know anywhere from ten to thirteen hours. And they essentially told, showed him. They showed him all kinds of graphic images of the crime scene. They kept on telling him, "We know you had something to do with this, and if you don't fess up, we're coming after you." You know, they didn't, to my knowledge, show him any specific evidence that they knew that he had anything to do with it. They just kept on telling him him that they did. They also had multiple officers go in, hound him, show him photographs, and then go out and leave him for you know. 10 to 20 minutes and then the next officer would come in and hound him and show him these these photographs so you can imagine after you know even after two hours of that that's exhausting mentally exhausting and then they were adding on you know they were going to do him as accessory to murder if he didn't confess and they you know that they knew that he had more evidence and so on so i think after you know 10 to 12 hours of, of that i would be exhausted i i can't imagine and it's not even like he's a seasoned guy either, you know, this is a young kid at the time. Yeah. You know, this is, a, what was he, like, um, he was like early 20s or something? He was, he was young, right? Yeah, he was He was very, very young when this was happening, so they were basically leaving him in that interrogation room to stew with these hardcore police tactics, um, just trying to get anything they could out of him, and eventually that and eventually that he cracked, um, and by cracked I mean uh, he agreed to sign a statement that was written by a, a representative of the DA's office. So essentially, the statement that he signed of this supposed confession that Joe had made to him was actually written by a member of the prosecution, which already seems a little bit unfair. Yeah, and then they took him and his parents out for a lovely meal right after for the inconvenience. Yeah, they after he after he signed it. Yeah. As soon as they got him to sign it, they took him out to dinner. Yep. He signed a statement that he didn't write. 
then couldn't get anything that he promised he would. He said that he would have a you know a taped conversation with Joe and get this alleged confession out of him, and he never he never he never got anything out of him. He, because even when he did bring it up, Joe was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And and he left it at that. And then he was asked to go and meet Joe and wear a wire and get an actual confession, um, you know, face to face. And he refused. He wouldn't do it. He was also a known liar. He was. He was. He had been in trouble previously for lying about his education and um, a couple of other things on his Navy exam, I believe it was. Yeah. And also that uh, that conversation, that taped conversation on the phone, if I um, I that was months later itself. That wasn't even like you know the next day we're gonna have you call him. That was like they they let him go for for nine. I think it was like nine months. Yeah, it was something. It was something like eight nine months, and then the, and they still never made a move on Joe because I guess the signed fake confession thing wasn't quite enough. So they said we need you to get an actual confession. And you know, you said even when he brought it up, but you know, technically, you you know, I've read through that whole testimony pretty much. He never actually brought it up. He um he said the the words that he used were, "You didn't tell anybody else. You didn't tell nobody else, did you?" And that could refer, and this was actually brought up in one of the in one of his appeal hearings. That could refer to literally anything in the world. You didn't tell anybody else what. But that was Joe's response. Joe's response was, tell anybody what? What do you mean? What are you saying? Yeah, Joe's exact, exact response was that. And it was really interesting because they, the prosecution was allowed to, to put that line into, the, um, into their statement, into their argument, that you didn't tell anybody else, as proof that Nahara had tried to bring up this confession. Um, and said that they that the line implied that he was talking about the confession or that he was bringing it up indirectly, but the judge would not allow Joe's response to be entered into the testimony. So the defense could not say tell anybody what the defense couldn't say. Well, he didn't know what he was talking about. He they couldn't bring up that response at all. So it was a fully one-sided argument, and it was ruled out. They called it hearsay because they said that it was just a, that it was the accused making um, declarations of innocence on his own behalf. That to me is um, absolutely barbaric because you you can the one team is allowed to use it as evidence and one team isn't allowed to use it as evidence. That that's that's not fair. That's literally how you get an unfair trial because how can you block his right to defend his argument, but you can use the argument as a reason to make him guilty and put him in prison. That was the only piece of evidence that they had, that they called evidence. To me, that's not evidence whatsoever. That's a a, a hearsay conversation that he tried to imply something and he never got a response from it. So I, I feel like he was really, really, really done unjustly on that alone. Just the fact that he wasn't able to defend that conversation and say, what are you talking about? He should have been able to defend that. I think that was really wrong. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Yeah, the the defense wasn't really allowed to use any of that tape to interview. And actually, it's 
it's really interesting along with unfair because, you know, the police insisted on this interview in order to strengthen their case that they supposedly had against Joe. And it was so damaging to their arguments that they, that they then, the prosecution then insisted that it be, dis- that it be taken out of evidence and not allowed entirely. And there was only those couple of lines from Nahara that only the prosecution was allowed to use because everything else was called hearsay because it was just Joe defending himself. But, you know, even, even if you're not allowed to defend yourself as an accused in a conversation, it's not like he did it knowing the conversation was recorded, you know. He wasn't defending himself like, I know this is going to go into court, so I better make it seem like I'm innocent. He was having a conversation with a friend of his. And he didn't even get arrested for another three, three years after that conversation. So it wasn't like he'd already been arrested, he knew that he was being watched or, or anything like that. He, he still wasn't arrested for like another three and a half years. So this conversation to him was a conversation he was having with his friend. He had he was none the wiser to this being recorded or, or anything like that. So yeah, like you say, it wasn't like, you know, he did it because he knew he was being watched. He didn't. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, that's another thing, too, the three years thing. There, there was another three years between this supposed damning confession and this arrest. But, you know, this is a guy that the state and the prosecution, the police are saying, you know, this is a monster. He murdered this girl brutally. He stabbed her 186 times. This is a dangerous man, but we're just going to let him chill for three more years while we decide whether or not we put, want to put him away. We have everything we need, but, you know, hang out there for a second. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, because they didn't get any more evidence. They never got anything. So, yeah, why did they wait so long? And and there was a part where they found a tape in Connie's car that had a, a, a song in it. And, and they tried to say that he was singing that song or, or something while committing this crime. Um, which, again, I think it's crazy because I listen to all kinds of music. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm out there. If I listen to death metal, it doesn't mean that I'm worshipping Satan or... You know, it, it, to me, it was crazy that you can even try and pin a song into a crime because because it, somehow they made it fit. It, it it doesn't fit. That's not evidence. Yeah, they yeah they tried to do the whole you know using the, using the lyrics and using the context of the song as motive as motive for the crime and you know that's the, in my mind that's the same argument as trying to say violence is called by games. It's not. There's no real evidence to support that. But they did try to make that a big part of their argument. And if you're going to follow that line of thought, then what it, are you also saying the person that wrote the song is a murderer because they yeah. wrote it? You know, like that's just yeah, such yeah, a silly thing. <laughs> right. Well, no, but he was obviously encouraging people to murder. He's an accessory. Why don't we charge him? Yeah, <laughs> that just seems so ridiculous to me. You know, I also I also wanted to mention too that that whole thing about um how you know you didn't tell anybody else that that could refer to anything. There were there is actually a portion of one of his appeal hearings, which is on our Instagram and on the Free Joe Stock website, uh, where the judge actually talks about that line and says exactly that. You know, we don't know if he was talking about the murder. We don't know if he was talking about the ball game last week. When you had talked about the timeline a lot and how it just doesn't add up, one thing in the timeline that really stood out to me is the car being found again. Do you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is something that when when I read this, I mean, I live in England, so I know that, that laws and, and stuff are different, and I don't know how big Illinois is. I don't know the area. I don't know anything about where this crime happened. But just the fact that they searched this area, they searched this complex, they said the car was not there, and then while Joe was in custody... They searched the area again, and the car was found there. 
the police officer put out a statement and said, no, we definitely checked this area. It, the car was not there. Somebody must have hid it and put it there later. But then I'm like, okay, so if Joe took the car, how did he move it and plant it at the drug dealer's house while in police custody, where his family were with him? Who, who moved the car then? Somebody put that car there. Somebody had to. And it couldn't have been him because he was in police custody. So how did it get there? Yeah, the um the police officer, by the way, was John Coziel, um, was his name. But, you know, that's another thing, too, with that, with that drug dealer's pro- um, property. And that should really be touched on. Because not only was it at the place where, she, where it was known that she bought and did drug deals, but it was also known that she was in pretty deep debt with these dealers, with this, um, this gang that she was buying from. To the point that she was actually taking, like, she was stealing things from her family and friends and pawning them in order to pay back her drug debts, you know, which, um, to me, is something that should have been investigated quite a bit more, too, and doesn't seem to have been looked into. Especially because the car was found there. That, that to me, they kind of just, it was almost like they didn't even, they didn't even look into it. Like, they didn't care. They were just like, well, we've got it now. That's another thing that we can put on him. I feel like they made a decision that he was the guy and that was it, and, and, Nobody else was really looked at. None of this stuff was really looked at. How can you move a whole car while being in police custody? And the police are saying, we searched this area. This car was not here. And it's appeared now in that time frame that Joe is in custody. Does that not strike anybody else as weird? The defense actually tried to call that, that police captain in um, to talk to him, that, that John Cozio, who had said that that area was definitely checked earlier and the car had to have been deposited since. That was his exact quote at the scene. And the defense had tried to call him in to uh, attest to that, and the prosecution actually tried to block him from being called as a witness. Eventually they got him in, but, you know, again, it's like, what are you trying to, you know, this is supposed to be a fair trial. Why are you trying to keep something like that out that seems like a pretty important factor if you're saying that was his getaway car yeah this is just an example of you know the police already having their guy and just making the evidence fit the person which is not the way that the legal system is supposed to work but this is the exact reason why we have as many wrongful convictions as we do do you guys want to kind of talk about so something that we've also talked about on our episodes is that the amount of strength that it would take to be able to stab someone 180 times in a row and the amount of energy that that would take. You guys want to talk about that a little bit? Because it's just insane that somebody, you had talked about that, like how long it would take to actually do that much, to do that crime, how long that would take and how that just didn't fit and all of that. Yeah, it's not exactly a leisurely activity that takes some effort. Yeah, to stab somebody a hundred, I think, so if that's, if you were to stab somebody one time per second, that is, that's, <laughs> that's three whole minutes Three whole minutes of, of motion. And not only, it's not just the case of a downward motion, just up, down, up, down. I mean, they were fighting. They were struggling. There was a struggle that went on. She was attacking her attacker. She was being, you know, brutally murdered in, in this way. The amount of energy that that would take, that's not an easy thing to do. And there was blood all through the house. So after this had happened, they were then... You know, going. I, I mean, we never really found out why they went through the house. There was blood on, on in every room. There was blood on the phones. There was, you know, blood everywhere. But the amount of strength that it would take to do a crime like that. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Lee and Cherie. 
Join us back next week for part two. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.